Hello, everyone, fight fans. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the Monday Morning Analyst for, uh, what is it now, the 24th, 25th, something like that. It's Memorial Day. I was in the Marine Corps for six years, so I um, um, hope everyone is using this Memorial Day appropriately, not thanking veterans necessarily, but remembering those who uh, passed away in service uh, to um, protect this country and protect our rights. That being said, let's talk about some fights. This is the Monday Morning Analyst, so we took over the technical action from the weekend uh, in combat sports, predominantly mixed martial arts. I really, really, really want to focus on UFC 187, so the predominant amount of attention will be uh, given to them. There were some other events, I know, um, but I will make sure that videos and whatnot and news from around the world in combat sports get posted when I put this video up on MMA fighting. As you guys know, we go about 30 minutes or so. I got it on the clock. We have three parts to this podcast, the big overview, a review of the technical action, and then a uh, quick, quick mention of the big fights to come the following weekend. So we will do that now, all right? And we kick this off as such. Okay, we're on the clock. The big overview. Well, I have to say, was that not UFC 187 a fantastic event? Was that not so much fun? Was that not everything we've always asked for? Was that not just worth every penny? that you spent on pay-per-view. I bought the pay-per-view, of course, and uh, uh, it was worth it, man. It was worth it, and, and and there's so many different ways to tell, but for me, one of the signals for that is that when I, I re-watched the fights maybe two or three times to collect notes, and then I used those notes for this podcast, it was better the second or third time around. You know, fights really don't have a lot of shelf life, particularly in this oversaturated age that we're in. And these ones, I think, will. They, they really absolutely will. These were telling fights. These were fun fights. These were important fights. And I think more to the point, you know, and I mentioned this in my, you know, my What's at State column is not a big priority for me or for the site. It's just a column I write um, on Saturdays, put it up at 2 p.m. and get a little SEO traffic from it, make a few quick points, and you get out. Not, not saying it's worthless, but it's not like the biggest thing that we do by any stretch of the imagination. But one point I had noted in it was when the UFC doesn't hold up their end of the bargain and they make these shows that are just you know filled to the brim with guys who have no business being there and the action suffers, they deserve to be you know criticized for it. But when they do the opposite, when they fill the card with elite talent from top to bottom, which is exactly what they did, or at least elite prospects, if not ranked contenders, um, and and it stands up to the pressures of real life, meaning when injuries happen and they have to fill in, or when the case of you know just real world craziness happens and John Jones has to get removed from the card, the card still holds together. That's when you know that the UFC is putting their product out correctly. This is all that I ask. You, the UFC, have a product that when you want to put it together correctly, nobody else can match. That is exactly what UFC 187 was. That is all that I ask. Give me something that nobody else can give me. Um, and many, many shows these days are not even like that at all. This one was. There's no one else in the world who could give you what UFC 187 gave you. It's just not possible. And so that is just, it's so refreshing to see. It's so much fun. To me, it's, you know, look, even ranked guys will have boring fights time and again, but it's not a coincidence to me that when you have that many elite guys and that many important fights doing, um, you know, at the front end of so much technical progress that you get fantastic action. It's just not an accident. It's just not an accident. So, um, 
So I really feel like this was like, you know, uh, a proof of concept of kind of what I've been talking about for a long time. Look, if people want to see more fights and go watch more fights, I'm not here to take it away from you, nor could I if I tried. But 187 is such a testament to how good the UFC product can be when it's put together in ways that cannot be mimicked by promoters of lesser stature or rank or ability. And and I think you're, these are the fruits of their labor. So... UFC 187 took place at the MGM Grand Garden Arena. Let's get into the technical action now. This is, of course, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Something to note, an attendance of 12,615, so not a sellout, but a gate of 5.189 million. Folks, to get that kind of gate um, with close to a sellout, but not quite, in a post-Mayweather-Pacquiao environment, those are very good gate numbers, very good gate numbers. And again, I think it speaks to the enthusiasm that fans have. Fans want to see stars. Fans want to see big fights. Fans want to see guys that they have allegiances to and that they know and that they um, can rely on for, for entertainment. Um, and for more than that, for to, to be a part of the most important fights that um, uh, you can enjoy in this in this time that we're living in. And 187 delivered that in every way possible. Fantastic card. Um, so much to talk about in this one. By the way, BJ Penn getting announced as the Modern Era Wing Hall of Fame entrant. Um, unfortunately, Nina Ansaroff and Rose Namajunas got scrapped from the card, so we won't be talking about that. There was there was just no fight. I don't know what's going to happen with Nina going forward in the UFC, but Rose was paid her show and win money. But I just want to point out, like, there's so many. I don't know what kind of numbers it's going to do in pay-per-view. It did really good traffic. Not amazing on the site, but very, certainly very commendable. Um, and then you look at these live gate numbers. There's a reason to believe that I don't think – I don't. I can't say with any certainty, but if it comes out being really good numbers, let's say right around 500,000, you know, I, I would say that it wasn't heavily affected by um, uh, Mayweather Pacquiao, more affected by the absence of John Jones. But we'll see what the numbers. If it comes out like 300,000, you know, I'll tailor that back a little bit. All right, so let's start from the top down, right? That's what we've been doing here more recently. Daniel Cormier defeating Anthony Johnson via rear naked choke at 239 of the very first round. There is uh, so much positive things to say about this interview, or this interview, this fight that I want to get to. I'm going to pull up my notes here. And, um, um, First thing I want to say is I, there were some folks who were crowing about um, Cormier calling out Jones after the fight. I don't know. I don't know what planet that could possibly be um, a legitimate criticism to make, but it is, I guess, uh, or at least you know, to some people it is. But uh, oh, I got to pull up my. I had to hide my notes, and now I'm pulling them up here. Um, so this is a live program, gang. Six zero. All right. So we're pulling this up. I am going to uh, – I just want to make a note up quickly about Dean Cormier calling him out. Um, I thought it was genius. I think if you think that that's not going to work, you're totally mistaken. Um, two points I want to make about this real quickly. Number one, um, I, look, Dean Cormier is not the best fighter at light heavyweight, but he is the champion, and he is the undisputed champion. It's not the same as GSP walking away, handing away the title, when arguably I thought he lost to Hendricks and two, he's at the downswing of his career. Um, I'm not entirely convinced he can beat Robbie Lawler at this point, and I don't. I definitely don't think he can beat Johnny Hendricks. Which also leaves a question about his place in the division. Secondly, um, you know, look, we all saw what happened with with Jones and Cormier the first time. Jones won, but two things: one, 
he took the fifth round off. It was not a particularly convincing performance. And secondly, uh, Cormier won that second round, I believe. So you can make a case, arguably, that he won two rounds. Now, you cannot make a credible case that he won three rounds. I think it was a pretty clear win for John Jones. And if Jones had really stepped on the gas, he probably could have won four of the five rounds. Okay, fine. Um, and I would favor John to win the second fight. I would pick him right now to win. But the point being is, number one, Cormier, his nemesis, now has the title that he was stripped for. So that has to be eating him up inside. And secondly, I think more importantly, if you're Daniel Cormier, you can say, look, I lost to this guy the first time. I didn't get knocked down. I didn't get nearly submitted. I didn't get rocked. I just lost four of the five rounds or maybe three of the five rounds, depending on your perspective. I can make the technical adjustments to give this guy problems. Look what I did in that second round. I can do a lot more of that. If you don't think that can sell or work with a wider casual public, I would, I will bet my life that you are wrong. I will bet my life that that will do gangbusters, predominantly because of the return of John Jones, but also because of the other raw ingredients there for both salesmanship and for um, there's a reason to believe at least Daniel Cormier can make it closer. Time off for Jones, steady competition for Cormier, Cormier understanding what went wrong the first time, having a keen understanding as an athlete, all these things kind of matter. But for the fight itself, a lot of fun to get to in the first round. How about that hammering right hand from Anthony Johnson? Anthony Johnson coming out, you guys know he has that sort of the busy hands that he uses, measured him with a jab, and then popped him with the right. Cormier scrambling back. I mean, he got bellied out from that, right? He must have gotten hurt bad. Um, But the way it happened was when Johnson follows up, he throws another right and misses. Cormier ducks and then spins clockwise into him to get behind him. Um and from there, there was a lot of different underhooking, a lot of front headlocks, a lot of different combinations he was using just to keep his weight on Anthony Johnson. You ever seen two wrestlers go at it, and the other one keeps pulling on the head and pulling on the head and pulling on the neck, and maybe he doesn't shoot afterwards? The reason why is because you're trying to tire him out. You're trying to get his neck muscles working. You're trying to get his back muscles working. You're trying to get him tired. You want the posture to come up so you can blast through, but more than that, just to be physically fatigued. And Pulling on the head is one way to do that. Leaning on the head is another way to do that as well. So it it was kind of interesting to note, um, when Cormier was trying to secure back control, he would get directly behind his hips. You want your hips right on top of someone. If you're off to the side, it's harder to control them. But when you're standing, it's a little bit uh, of a different rule, right? Um, If they're standing and you have a, depending on what kind of lock you have, one hand under the arm, one hand behind the neck, there's a lot of varieties there. And you're kind of, leaning off to the side. Now, that takes some practice and some work, but someone like Cormier, you can imagine doing that. So when you watch this fight the whole time, you just see Cormier leaning, sagging, just always just making Daniel or, uh, Anthony Johnson carry that weight. People always say, well, he has to carry the weight, carry the weight, carry the weight. And they never explain what that means. This is what that means. Underhook, far side neck, and then sagging off, dropping the left elbow down while you're pulling on the neck. The the, the spine is getting t- turned a little bit. And you, ha- you don't want to let them do that because if you do that, you can get off balance. So what do you have to do? you got to right the ship. But when you right the ship, you're using your muscles to control your posture. That that pays dividends over time. It's just think of that wrestler getting pulled on his neck, pulled on his neck, pulled on his neck. Eventually, your lower back is going to start hurting. You're going to lose posture. And you're going to get blast doubled. Um, let's see. So still in that first round. Um. One thing that was kind of interesting was there was a point where um, Cormier, first of all, just a a totally diverse array of different takedowns he used. But in this particular case, caught a kick, slid back to the ankle, 
and then tried to while you know Johnson's just winging punches, but then angles out on him and then drives forward with his shoulder with it while it's hooked. Johnson reads it, tumbles forward, right? So he didn't just like belly out himself or get his hands on the mat and Cormier got it behind him. He rolled with it, which was really smart. But Cormier, all he needs to do is get you moving. If you're moving, even if you're scrambling away, um, chances are he can just use one thing to set up the next. So that was pretty clever, I thought. So Rumble rolls through, but it's just long enough for DC to get another front headlock. I like that he was doing that. He was making Rumble not just carry weight, but if he was going to scramble, he was going to scramble to some other place where he was just going to reset the position. Um, the thing that I thought was kind of interesting was, um, so they're up against the fence. Johnson's back's against it. Cormier's leaning on him with a front headlock. Um, you see what Johnson does. Johnson wants to get his head popped up, and he wants to get an underhook. Right? He wants to neutralize the position or make it 50-50 anyway. And there's a point where you see the hands of Cormier are below the chin. Like you can see Johnson see it. And he takes his own hand with the forearm and breaks the grip. But as he breaks the grip, he opens his arms like this. Well, what happens when you open your arms like this? You create all this space. So as soon as the head popped up and he broke the grip, okay, that's the first stage. But the second stage is you got to get away. And he couldn't do that because the fence was behind him, which Cormier knew. So what does Cormier do? Drives the left underhook right again. Have you noticed that he and Kane both do that? They like to drive deep on the left underhook, get guys leaning, trying to push back, get guys leaning for the punches, get guys leaning. I mean, all different kinds of attacks they like to use in there. That left underhook, and they drive it deep, man. Guys' shoulders go over like this. It's crazy how good they are at that. But my point being is, if they had been in this, 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 remember what I've said, if you use the cage to take someone down, that doesn't make you a bad wrestler. But bad wrestlers predominantly rely on the cage. This is a different scenario. This is one where he's getting reactions out of Johnson just to make him move. But if he were in open space, that would have worked. Breaking the hands in open space and popping your head out from the top of the of, uh, the sort of the crook of the elbow of Cormier. If he was in open space, he could have popped it and then circled out. But against the fence, you can't circle out. So this is a really clever use of the space, forcing reactions, having a plan to immediately follow up on it, and knowing that the space you're in allows those reactions for you to be one step ahead. Brilliant, brilliant. First round, I thought for Daniel Cormier, even getting rocked, and Johnson coming out and just showing tremendous power. There, by the way, it should be noted throughout the course of the fight, you have to admire the guts of Daniel Cormier to exchange with him at range. But every time he did, he got tuned up. So like he had to figure out things pretty quick. I mean, he may have landed a few right hands here or there, but um, whenever they were exchanging here, he was getting torched. So second round comes around. This is where everything begins to change, right? Cormier tries to trade in the pocket, and he starts getting picked apart. As I mentioned, he finally catches another kick drives, uh, uses it to drive Johnson back into the fence. This was my favorite. Um, um, so he has, Johnson is turning his hips out and Cormier has that outside leg wrapped and he's trying to get the far side ankle and scoop it. Okay. And Johnson's base is lower. Well, Johnson's like, well, I can't get my ankle scooped because then I'll be on my back. I don't want that to happen. So what does he do? He stands. Mostly, or at least he, he, he brings his base further up in the air and then stomps his foot out to avoid getting scooped. Well, when he does that, 
bad move because at the same time, again, he's just getting reactions out of you. He doesn't want to scoop your ankle. He wants you to think he's scooping your ankle. So when you stomp down and you raise your base, you create more space. That's exactly what, it, what happens. Um, Cormier gets behind both knees because if you're going around someone's waist and they're spreading their legs out, you see guys, they can't quite get their hands together. But if someone stomps down and their the legs are already close to part because they haven't had a chance to spread them out yet, bang, here it comes. Picks them up behind the knees, puts them over shoulder, and drops them down um, where he moved into half guard. And from there, he spent most much of the rest of the round. This, to me, was an incredible performance from, from here for a couple of reasons. One, he was really diligent about making sure that Anthony Johnson couldn't get the underhook. So you saw at one point late in the round, Johnson digs the underhook, and Corm and, and I've told you guys this before, remember? It's one thing to dig the underhook on the same side, but this hand has to be planted. Johnson got to an elbow. He got close, but at that point, Cormier was able to just take two hands behind the elbow and then sink it out and put him back down. A couple things you should know. He was always sort of driving the right shoulder up into the other shoulder of Johnson, but that's that's weight carrying. When he wasn't doing that, he was not just driving elbows into him. like He would dr drive an elbow, and then he would lean on the elbow to go attack other parts. So he was sort of always putting pressure from the chest up. Other times he was getting hip to hip with him. Just, just you know, when people say, "Oh, what does it mean to carry weight?" This is what it means to carry weight. You have to know how to lean it on someone and make them take it, and then you have to have attacks based on their responses. Um, and that only comes with time on the mat. It doesn't come any other way. You don't know what you're doing. You're going to get it. Um, was pretty good about uh, Cormier. Was pretty good about keeping that underhook on the left arm of Johnson. Now you saw he had a couple of uh, Kimura attempts. They weren't that close. They looked kind of close for a minute. Um, but someone like Johnson, like if think about this, if your arm is next to your body, you're not going to get Kimura. If your arm is away from your body, you stand a chance of getting Kimura. But what has to happen? The arm has to go this way, right? So it's hard when you're in half guard to get that on someone. It's a real body type thing. I'm tall. And so I can get that on shorter opposition. I can lean without getting rolled and get it behind them. I can get a lot of torque, but a big, strong kid like Johnson, that's just not going to work on. So what does Cormier do? Cormier steps off the gas a little bit to let Johnson sit up. Well, he wants Johnson to sit up because that enables him to get the hand behind the back. So that forces Johnson to go back down. Um, in other words, the Kimura didn't work, but in addition to all the pressure he's putting on Johnson, he's making Johnson believe things exist that don't. And he's getting him to panic because he's getting closer and closer with that Kimura. So that was sort of really interesting to see as well. Um, last thing I noticed was that the one time Cormier sort of stood up off of him, Johnson got a knee shield. So a knee shield is when your bottom leg is grabbing their leg. That's like sort of the half guard part of it. And rather than just grabbing, your, you know, rather than just crossing your ankles on the outside, you put your top knee over their hip. It's called a knee shield. Well, Cormier just leans into the knee shield. Now, that can be a little bit dangerous if someone drops the knee shield and then turns because you can go flying face first. But, you know, I think Cormier was sort of recognizing he had a very, very tired opponent. Round three comes around. You can see how excited I am about this fight. Round three comes around. This was amazing to me. So, Johnson, again, comes out and tries to tee off on Cormier against the fence. Johnson um, slips against the fence, I think, throwing, and then decides he's going to take down Cormier as like a reactive measure. Bad move, man. The whole part about locking it with Cormier is Cormier is eventually going to win when you lock up with him. If you get 50-50 with him and you did a drill being like someone take the other guy down first, you might stop a bunch of his takedowns and he might stop a bunch of yours. You may get close, 
but who's eventually going to win that exchange? It's going to be him, right? Or you know, ninety times nine times out of a hundred. And so Cormier um, avoids a takedown and then manages to turn Johnson into the fence because Johnson's sort of behind him at this point, right? Um, and manages to turn Cormier manages to turn into him without ever getting an underhook. A lot of times, that's when you're going to get taken down. You, someone's back is here. You're going to come over the top with your arm, try and get an underhook, but there's a moment in time where they're on your waist. Uh, you see that a lot in MMA, and guys get pulled down. Johnson couldn't do anything, which to me was a – I mean, if you, if you didn't think he was tired before, that was a clear sign he was fatigued, was that he was – that Cormier turned into him with no underhook and did not even – like there was no attempt to take him down. Um Cormier eventually gets back out, tries to get a treetop takedown where he puts the ankle on top of his shoulder. Johnson was just battering him and avoided it. So sick balance by Anthony Johnson. That was kind of amazing. Um, this was another cool one. So now he's pushing Johnson into the fence. And what does Cormier do? Cormier drops to a knee, but not totally. He sort of lowers his level. And Johnson um, felt like Cormier was too deep on him. So what does Johnson do? Johnson drops to a knee. So now he's more level with him. Now, that's not a good place to be because if you're on your knees and you're tired and someone's pressing into you, you're going to lose the scramble. You want to be both pressing into each other at, the, at, a, at, a, at a more uh, similar way. And so he wasn't doing that. So that's already a bad move, but it's not the end of the world. But what does Cormier do? Cormier takes his outside knee, the one that's furthest in on the exchange, and baseball slides out the back almost like a peek out to come around the back. I mean, you want to talk about high-level reactive decision-making. That is what I am talking about on this podcast. How many times we have to watch terrible fighters push each other up against the cage and they reach for a double and they can't get it. Then they reach for a single and the other guy reaches out the underhook. This guy is forcing reactions out of people that they, 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 they don't even know what they're making until it's way too late, way too late. Baseball sliding out of the back corner, almost like a peek out coming around. And now he has the back brilliant. Now Johnson was able to recover a little bit because Cormier got a little sloppy once he got to the spot. Um, um, but again, let me see here. Uh, oh, right. So, so Johnson tries to press into him, but at this point Johnson's exhausted. Cormier just basically walks around the back. Johnson's holding onto a leg and Cormier just like pulls his leg out. I mean, there's no, nothing technical about it, except he just freed it with force of will. That was another sign. You could tell Johnson was in trouble. Okay. So here comes the finish. This is my favorite part about the whole fight. Cormier is on the back of him. He doesn't have any hooks in because he's, you know, he doesn't have that body type that really allows him to get that kind of control and, Johnson's so big and strong, you want to be kind of careful about it. So what does he do? Johnson's kind of on the elbows. He's he's getting hit up, and, and Cormier is sort of leaning on one side and throwing, throwing. This hand is underneath the other armpit, the right hand. But it's not doing a whole lot at the moment. So what does he do? He sort of uh, leans over to a more 50-50 spot, neutral on the back. He uses the right hand to finally punch Johnson's head up. He hadn't been using before. He'd been using the left to clobber him. He comes up with the right, bang, head comes up, left hand snatches the choke. I mean, you want to talk about <laughs> just amazing, 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 amazing. And what set that up? Well, what set that up was Cormier was banging on him and leaning on him. Johnson knew he was in trouble and had to get out. So what does he do? Both hands come on the mat. As soon, as soon as both hands come on the mat, Cormier's right underneath the armpit of Johnson, bangs the head up. The head comes up, left hand snatches the choke. Now, he had to adjust it. He kind of got on the forearm, which is hard to finish. But Johnson, I think, was so 
so beat down at that point, he let it go. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about high-level MMA. You guys, oh, Luke, why are you so hard on these fighters? Why do you always bash all these cards? Because they don't look like that. That is what I am talking about. You are talking about elite skill, unbelievable presence of mind, so many tricks, so many turns, just guys putting ridiculous pressure on other guys with, frankly, kind of novel techniques. That is what I'm talking about. Daniel Cormier is one hell of a competitor because Anthony Johnson, man, Anthony Johnson's one of those guys where he, what we feel is he can be beat, but if you don't have the skills to match him, you're not just going to lose. You're going to lose in devastating fashion. Like he's, he's more well-rounded than Edson Barboza, but Edson Barboza kind of occupies a similar space. Like there's guys who can beat Barboza, but if you can't beat Barboza, he'll beat you worse than other guys, not even as good as him or even better than him sometimes, right? They're just not as – he's just so merciless in the way he competes. Um, Anthony Johnson sort of reminds me of that. Anyway, I, I went on forever about that fight because it was so good. Um, but that you guys always want to know what I'm talking about. Like, what do you want out of MMA? That's what I want out of MMA. That is what I want. I want you to lean on a guy so when he's so tired by the third round, he needs two hands to plant to get his base under him. And when he does, you don't hesitate a second. You fire the right hand under the armpit, raise the chin, and then use the left to snatch the choke. That is high, 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 elite level mixed martial arts, ladies and gentlemen. All right, Weidman Belfort. We have spent a ton of time on this. Weidman Belfort, a couple of things I just want to note about this. Um, watching it the second time, I didn't think uh, Weidman got nearly as hurt by the strikes as the first time. Weidman was doing a pretty good job of blocking the elbows that came afterward in, in close range, hanging on the head a little bit of Belfort. Belfort definitely landed some good uh, uppercuts, both dirty boxing and from, from space. And I think that was a little bit difficult for Weidman, but I didn't think he was as hurt as, as folks thought. He did get caught with a check hook on a jab after they separated. But the only thing I wanted to note about this fight was the double, usually you see guys you hit a double and then they, whatever foot is behind them, the trail leg, it steps and they go that way. Weidman finished the double like it was a single. In other words, he had his head on one side. He gets it. He basically just throws the back end of his body counterclockwise and then spins him out. In other words, like, almost like he was running the pipe. Um, where, you know, single leg, run the pipe, you take a back step, you drive the shoulder in, and they go down. Um, it's weird. I've never seen a guy finish like that. Someone else brought it to my attention on Twitter. So I went back and watched it, and they were right. He doesn't finish off to the side like that. He finishes here and then rotates his body in an opposite way. That's a very unique development I haven't quite seen. Um, Chris Weidman is the king of takedowns without having to use the fence, by the way, in mixed martial arts. Maybe there are other guys better than him, but he's so consistent with it that he almost never uses the cage for stuff like that, at least not very often or at least only when he gets tired. And that first round doesn't do a whole lot of that. Um, so, and obviously once you got to the ground, um, one thing I just sort of noticed there was the strength differential once he gets him in the half guard because you could it's, it's easy to look at an mma fight and be like oh he has one hand on the shoulder and one hand on the knee for half guard and he just slides his knee through if the guy underneath is stronger than you and has good jiu-jitsu and belfour is a carlson gracie black belt that's never going to work but if you're like he-man <laughs> and you can just hold them there um that is and he, as he did he just slid his knee out that, to me, told me there was a major strength differential. And that Belfort was just like, what am I dealing with with this kid? That, that was how I read that. Uh, okay. Cerrone McDessey. This was a ton of fun. A ton of fun. Um, and as you guys saw, um, Dana White went out of his way to compliment uh, McDessey, which I'm glad he did. 
So first round, you see a couple things Cerrone doing interestingly. He likes to blitz with um, the jab and then the straight. Um, McDessey, the left hand, uh, Jerogan sort of noted it in the second round. It was landing good in the first round. He was going hook, hook to the body, or uh, body head, I'm sorry. So just just double hooks right to right in a row. Cerrone was getting hit with those. That was kind of cool. Um, both guys were utilizing front hook counters, meaning off of the, let's see, uh, off of uh, the guy's straight punches. Um and I sort of thought in the first round there was good pocket awareness from uh, and sort of instinctive decision-making from Cerrone where they were like locked up and throwing strikes and Cerrone who was dodging most of them and then reacting quickly uh, with his own right hand off of McDessie's left. That's not here nor there. The one thing I want to point out to you was the second round. Uh, number one, in the first round, Cerrone was going a lot to the low kicks from the rear leg. He switched it up and went to both sides, well, front leg and rear leg in the second. Um, that was sort of interesting. Uh, the other part about it was that McDessie had made some adjustments. So in the first round, Cerrone was able to blitz from jab, cross, and then change angles and come in for more. Um, in the second round, he wasn't able to do that because McDessie was getting better distance. So then he tried to blitz with the just the straight right, but he was getting caught with the left hook every time he did that. McDessie's timing with the left and that uh, as any kind of counter was amazing. Really, that was the best thing he did all the fight. But um, the thing that I really want to point out to you was how was the fight finished? This, to me, was phenomenal. So what does Cerrone do? Cerrone comes out. Um, I think he threw a, a right straight, but just pawing. Then he throws a jab, but just pawing. Shuffles an inside kick, and then immediately, inside kick, shuffle, bang, head kick. A little more complicated than that, though. Here was the trick. He paws with the jab to make sure he's got the right distance. Sits in with the low kick. As he's shuffling back to bring the leg back and then go up to the head, he keeps his hand out, his lead hand. In this case would be his right. Oh, no, excuse me, his left. He brings his left out and wraps it around the back of the neck of Macdessey. Right, so he jabs in, low kick. As he's bringing the low kick back, the left hand stays out behind the neck of Macdessey, and then he brings the high kick up. In other words, he leaves Macdessey's head in place for the one, two, right up the top. That was <laughs> phenomenal from uh, Donald Cerrone. Phenomenal. So it wasn't just the presence of mind to double up on the same side. It was, it was leaving no doubt by making sure that opponent's head is right there where you need it to be, not just sticking your hand out, grabbing the back of the neck, holding it, and then driving the thing up. And you know what? Magdessi, I'm glad he quit. Once you get your jaw broken, man, I've seen guys you know power through it. Um, you shouldn't. You shouldn't power through it. You should. You should call it a day. You have a, You can lift the fight another day. You took the fight on short notice. Um, you know he fought courageously. Damage like that does not need to be sustained for any longer than it is. All right. Um, so that was awesome. I thought just sticking that hand out there for the for the double left kick. So changing angles or changing excuse me, changing levels on the kick, and then holding him there by first creating the range with the jab. Uh, and then keeping his hand out in between the kicks to make sure that the head kick just landed flush. Uh, how crazy was Arlovsky Brown? Pretty crazy, wasn't it? I'm not going to go into this because it was a wild brawl. The one thing I wanted to note was, and they said on the broadcast he did it twice. I counted three times he did it. So what am I talking about? We have talked about this for, before. Uh, uh, Carlos Condit, Dan Hardy. Uh, Sam Stout versus um, Ross Pearson. Right? where guys are, and I went 30 minutes already, I'll try and go as fast as I can, where guys are standing opposite 
they both throw the same punch, and then they have dueling hooks. They both come over the top, and whoever just, you know, who's the faster gunslinger wins. That's it. That's the whole bit. And what happens? Well, what happens is that the guy who's faster wins. Maybe not the guy who's better, just the guy who's faster. Okay, the back fist looks kind of hokey because you're used to the one, two, spin, and behind. That's not what this is, but it doesn't need to be. What he's doing with this back fist is he's throwing with this side or whatever side it might be. This is this will be the lead side in my case. He's not going to whip around with the power hook. He's not going to try and match you. He's going to come here and then just slice it back. That's what he's doing. He's, he's committing huge in a punch. And then rather trying to come around with this one, no, 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 no. Commit, bang. Why? Shorter distance to travel. You have, you're totally exposed on that side. You don't have to play the game of who can just whip the hook around faster, which is dangerous to begin with. And by the way, if you can master the motion of it a little bit, as we've seen, it lands with serious authority. He did that three times in that fight. He would miss with the, whatever, the, maybe he would miss with the, Maybe he missed with the um, maybe he missed with the right. I think in that case he would miss with the right rather than come back with the left. Bang! Just chop him out with that spinning. With the, it's not a spinning back fist. It's just a rotating back fist. I think that's brilliant. We have talked so many times on this podcast about the dueling, um, the dueling hooks and how just dangerous and precarious it is. And in fact, John Moraga and Joseph Benavides did it. Andre Olavsky just said, forget it. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to develop a technique where if I miss on this punch, I'm not going to worry about trying to match my hook against yours. I'm just going to bang you out by coming the back. I'm going to rotate one way for the punch and I'm going to rotate back the other way with this. You're going to be totally exposed. I'm going to beat you to the punch every time because I have less distance to travel and it's still going to hit hard. What an awesome technical development from Andre Olavsky. All right. Last on the main card, but certainly not least, John Moraga and Joseph Benavidez. I kind of thought this fight was Moraga's on the feet. He was landing much better with his kicks. Um, he got dropped with one right hand early in the first round, but if you go back and watch the other rounds, particularly the second and the third, he was tuning Benavidez up, both with rights and lefts, more so with the right, but he caught him with a one uh, check left hook uh, coming in. But what was the key difference? A um, couple things in that first round. Remember the suplex? Do you see how he set up that suplex, Moraga? Fantastic, right? Here's what he did. He got behind him, and he didn't just try to lift him. He did the Randy Couture bit. Randy Couture was known for getting a hold of you, running you into the fence to get you to bounce, and once you bounced, bang. He would use your momentum coming back to then lift you and throw you or pick you up and slam you, whatever the case may be. Moraga did the same. You see him drive into the fence and then come back and hit the throw. Um, it didn't, It didn't. I mean, it landed, but it, he wasn't able to get on top from it, but I, I just appreciated the, 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 the you know, the... Um, courage it takes to try something like that. Um, but this fight was really kind of decided on the floor. You know, Benavides was able to get the takedowns when he needed. You saw that third round knee tap, which he just blew straight through. That was kind of interesting. But once there, what was he doing? Well, um, Moraga did a good job of maintaining half guard. And the reason why that was important was because you saw Benavides kind of always wrap the head like this. He was going to use that to then jump to a mounted guillotine. But he can't if he's trapped in half guard the whole time. He can't really get adjust. He was able to pass a few times. But after that, you saw when the one mount attempt with a guillotine, he had one hand up on the, on I believe, where was he on that time? On the head, on the neck. You, a lot of times when you get put in half guard, they tell you put one hand on their, uh, or excuse me, on side control, they tell you put one arm on their hip and one arm on their neck. This is where you want to be. He had that one arm on the neck, so when he spun, the hand was here. He could never clasp his hands directly underneath 
Moraga's chin. And so I, he had a hard time, even when he passed, I think he was reluctant to, to go for that again because he just knew that it would create a scramble if he missed it, and, and Moraga was was waiting for it. So the only thing about Moraga underneath that kind of uh, bugged me a little bit was um, good job maintaining half guard, good job maintaining knee shield for the most part, and then a good job getting back to full guard. But once he got to full guard, um, he just had no answer. There was no offense. There was no triangles. There was no arm bars. So it was really – the guard he had was really good from a defensive perspective but not so great from an offensive perspective. He was just good for trying to slow Benavidez down, but but that wasn't enough in the end. So I thought Moraga looked good on the feet and was just a little bit out of uh, behind on the ground, but nevertheless a great fight. Um, real quickly from the prelim card. I don't want to go over all these because we don't have time and there's no point. I'm not even going to go over a Hall versus Natal. Uh, let me read you some of these results so I don't uh, forget to do so. By the way, Arlovsky finished Brown at 441 of the first round. Cerrone finished McDessey at 444 of the second round. And Weidman finished Belfort at 253 of the first round. Um, John Dotson, by the way, def- defeated Zach Makovsky 29-28 across the board. I had it the opposite. I had 29-28 for Makovsky. I thought Makovsky looked awesome in this fight. The big thing that I really noticed with this one, the kind of technical adjustment that uh, Dotson made that for sure got in the third round, but I think lost in the first two. Bukowski kind of always reaching for the single leg, getting Dotson to back up. But what was Dotson doing? He would stop the takedown and then either stay in motion, or excuse me, stay in place, or just back up. In the third round, what did he do? He would stop the takedown and drive a knee. He'd stop the takedown, hold the head, and then yank an uppercut. So, in other words, he was stopping the offense of Makovsky and then delivering his own. He wasn't really doing that in the first and second rounds, at least not certainly not in the first and not as much in the second. He kind of was, you know, had took him a while to get his, his bearings. Now, the judges saw it for him, um, but um, um, I didn't. I saw it for Makovsky. Uh, Dong Hyung Kim defeated Josh Berkman at 213 of the third round via arm triangle choke. Only thing to sort of note about this that was interesting was. He had the arm triangle on the opposite side, right? So he has, you know, almost cross body trying to finish it. Um, he's able, it was tight before he jumped to mount. He gets to mount and he kind of sags a little bit in mount as he's leaning forward and gets it. Folks, you can be, not, you can start that in mount and hop off to the correct side and still can't finish it. For him to be threatening from the opposite side and then to finish it from mount, and you can see he was on his tippy toes a little bit driving his shoulder in the problem with doing that is that if you're not good at it and obviously he's good at it but if you're not good at it what you can wind up doing is um, lifting so high that you create enough space for them to survive but what he was able to do was he was able to dig and then push so a little bit of um berkman's neck was exposed but clearly by the time he got to mount he was i guarantee you that wasn't just a choke that was also a, a jaw crank because he was driving that pressure man you get someone with good shoulder pressure it is, a, it is a nightmare. But understand something about why his squeeze must be incredible. What they're teaching more nowadays with a head and arm triangle is when you hop, so let's say you started in mounts. So they're throwing punches. They throw punches back underneath. You use that to lock up the, the space so the arm is over here, and you get your hands clasped, and you jump to the side. A lot of folks are teaching now not just that you rotate your angle to seal the choke, but that you kind of squeeze into them with your chest you kind of you don't you don't lift your head up too high but you rotate in so your chest is putting pressure on them a little bit you're still cutting the angle so you're kind of you're kind of you're kind of torquing inside 
He didn't have any of that to finish the joke. Zero. None. We still finished it from mouth. Yo, Don Kim Kim must have a ridiculous squeeze. As I mentioned before, how fell the tall of the age of the hall? Such a decision. 
You have to wait till it's up and then they're moving. Boom, he gets it. But Koontz was helping him by driving him this direction. That was kind of cool too. Anyway, takes the back, hand fighting, eventually gets it in. Last thing I want about that choke, I want to point out, Makachev has a great body for MMA, which is to say when he gets that choke, it was super deep underneath the arm. But a lot of times when you get a choke, you want your elbow to be, it doesn't have to be, but you want your elbow to be sort of like in the center of their body. Makachev's elbow was like way out here and it didn't even matter. Uh, all right, last but certainly not least, Justin Scoggins defeated Josh Sampo. Uh, unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. A bit of a rebuilding process for Justin Scoggins. He's got a lot of talent. A couple things that I liked about it. Really good about cutting angles, so popping a jab and then turning out. I like that a lot. Reminded me a little bit of a little Lomachenko from the Mayweather-Pacquiao undercard. That was cool. Um, when he was getting flurried up, he would grab the leg of Sampo. Sampo would then have to acknowledge his leg is being grabbed. You have to respect it, and he would use it to break away. Um, he did a good job of getting his feet on the hips to push. And then rather than trying to scramble away, he would push and then go for his own takedown and then use that to eventually separate, uh, had the front leg hook kick, which he, uh, knocked a guy out with on the regional circuit. That was cool. Um, had the front kick to the face, I believe in the second round. Um, so look, he, he's not quite as devastating with his punching as he needs to be. And as long as he kicks, I mean, one of his kicks got caught and that's why he got taken down. Um, but nevertheless, I, I feel like he is sort of finding a way to put it all together. I would like to see his punching become a little bit more dynamic. But with that side leg stance, it's a little bit hard to do. Um, so there you go. Your bonus winners, fight of the night was Arlovsky versus Brown. Performance of the night, Daniel Cormier and Chris Weidman, which I, I could not dis- uh, agree with more. Fighter of the card to me, Daniel Cormier. Uh, real quickly, you know what, I'll just put it in the post. I'll put it in the post. There's a video of DeGale dropping Durrell, Andre Durrell from PBC on NBC this past week. I will put that in the post on MMA Fighting. And then the last thing I'd say is I'll try to put some videos from Glory 21. They all just got unlocked. Uh, Taishin, knock some dude out. Taishin Dong, um, knock some dude out. I'll put that in there. Marius Pujanowski, just measured Hollis Grazing and blasted him with overhand right from KSW. I'll put that in there. Um, and then, oh, next week is going to be Alves versus Condit. Let me pull that card up real quick, and then we will get out of here. I know I've gone on too long. Um, let's see here. This is going to be, I believe, on Fox Sports 1. Yep. A couple matches to note on that one. Carlos Condit, Tiago Alves. That should be phenomenal. The rematch between Nick Lentz and Charles Oliveira. That's from the versus days, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Norman Park versus uh, Francisco Trinaldo, Massa Rondoba. That, that one's going to be happening. Honey Jason takes on Damon Jackson. And then the big one on the prelim card, uh, Juicier Formiga takes on Wilson Hayes. Uh, I trained once with Wilson Hayes. He got a black belt from Roberto Godoy, and Godoy did a spine crank seminar. I'm not kidding. Um, and I went to it, and it was a uh, very difficult thing to tolerate. Also, Juliana Lima's on that card, and Lucas Martinez takes on Mirsad Bektic. So um, there's a lot of other filler on that card, but there is some decent fights on there as well. And of course, that will take place on Fox Sports 1. Um, I believe that's it. That's all I got for right now. Guys, thank you for joining me. By the way, you're not going to believe it, but that's true. I had a, a long meeting with Studio over the weekend. They're going to build a studio in here. Um, we're going to have to rearrange everything, and but they're going to they're going to give me graphics packages. They're going to edit this in the morning for me. It's going to be lots, but for now, I'm just going to make sure I get this content continuously going. Uh, follow me on Facebook, facebook.com/slash Luke T Sports. Email me luke.thomas at sbnation.com, and of course, you can follow me at sbn luke thomas on Twitter. Uh, thank you guys. Appreciate you watching. Until next time, enjoy the fights. <laughs>